Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view. That's the view of the founders of our country. They believe there is a creator God. That was the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose, we need to underline and highlight that only purpose, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and to secure those God-given rights. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two wonderful collaborators this wonderful Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, our warrior in the courtroom. By the way, Mike has a great show just before ours at uh, 7 a.m. Friday morning, so tune in to Mike G. in the morning. The law matters, and what a week this has been. We don't really have time today to analyze the election, but we'll we'll get to talking about that in the, in the days, days and weeks ahead. But uh, we're going to examine a particular case, a decision, an opinion of the Supreme Court today that had monumental impact and still is having enormous impact. And I would contend, and I, I trust that uh, Phil and Mike would agree with me, that the Supreme Court justices got it wrong in Wickard v. Philbin. And by the way, we're uh, in the midst of our series we're calling The Dirty Dozen, a dozen cases of the Supreme Court that uh, just are over the top in terms of uh, changing our form of government or getting it wrong when it comes to uh, the understanding of our Constitution. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, Wickard v. Hilburn? Well, Mark Twain once observed, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The Sixth Justice unanimous opinion in Wickard versus Filburn was written by Associate Justice Robert H. Jackson, who would later in 1945 to 1946 take a leave of absence from duties with the Supreme Court to assume the role of Chief United States Prosecutor at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, Germany, where the top Nazis were on trial for crimes against humanity. He is also remembered for his insightful dissenting opinion in the Korematsu case, a reminder to us to avoid the binary trap of assessing history simplistically in terms of good guys versus bad guys. That is a story for another day. So let's return to Mark Twain's thought about the men with hammers, which all the justices in Wickard versus Philburn appeared to be. Six of the eight justices were appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. Chief Justice Harlan F. Stone and Associate Justice Owen Roberts were appointed by President Calvin Coolidge. Of the eight, seven were graduates of law schools who had fairly typical careers in law and the judiciary. Jackson was the exception only in that he was not a graduate of a law school, but was the last U.S. Supreme Court justice who did not have a law degree. He was admitted to the bar via the older tradition of reading law under an established lawyer after studying at Albany Law School for just a year. If any of these justices had any intense exposure to the discipline of economics, it is not apparent from the record. That is the point about the men with a hammer. Law was their hammer with which they used to create what they believed would be a better society. In that sense, they were acting more as social engineers 
than as constitutionalists. Wickard versus Filburn cannot be just written off as a bunch of lawyers overly relying on their specialty, however. They all took oaths to support the Constitution of the United States, and their legal training should have allowed them to be particularly aware of the Constitution's original intent, which they failed to heed. Were they outrightly more loyal to progressive political philosophy than to the Constitution, viewing it as a living document? Or did they allow rationalization to play a major part in this and other opinions? We can only speculate. Let's look at the case background. Wikipedia offers this background on the underlying legislation behind Wickard versus Filburn. The Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 limited the area that farmers could devote to wheat production. Its stated purpose was to stabilize the price of wheat in the national market by controlling the amount of wheat produced. It was motivated by a belief by Congress that great international fluctuations in the supply and demand for wheat were leading to wide swings in the price of wheat, which were deemed to be harmful to the U.S. agricultural economy. Wikipedia continues with an explanation of how Roscoe Filburn ran afoul of the legislation. Roscoe Filburn was a farmer in what is now suburban Dayton, Ohio. He admitted producing wheat in excess of the amount permitted. He maintained, however, that the excess wheat was produced for his private consumption on his own farm. Since it never entered commerce at all, much less interstate commerce, he argued that it was not a proper subject of federal regulation under the Commerce Clause. In July 1940, pursuant to the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938, Filburn's 1941 allotment was established at 11.1 acres and a normal yield of 20.1 bushels of wheat per acre. Filburn was given notice of the allotment in July 1940, before the fall planting of the 1941 crop of wheat, and again in July 1941 before it was harvested. Despite the notices, Filburn planted 23 acres and harvested 239 more bushels than was allowed from his 11.9 acres of excess area. Filburn had initially won his case in federal court, but it was appealed by the government to the Supreme Court. Now, here's the opinion of the Supreme Court. Justia uh, summarizes the opinion. And I'll give you the points because I think one is at least one is dropped out here. Number two, the wheat marketing quota and attendant penalty provisions of the Agricultural Adjustment Act 1938 as amended by the Act of May 26, 1941, when applied to wheat not intended in any part for commerce, but wholly for consumption on the farm, are within the commerce power of Congress. Number three, the effect of the Act is to restrict the amount of wheat which may be produced for market and the extent as well as to which one may forestall resort to the market by producing for his own needs. Number four, that the production of wheat for consumption on the farm may be trivial in the particular case is not enough to remove the grower from the scope of all federal regulation, where his contribution, taken with that of many others similarly situated, is far from trivial. Number five, 
The power to regulate interstate commerce includes the power to regulate the prices at which commodities in that commerce are dealt in and practices affecting such prices. Number six, a factor of such volume and variability as wheat grown for home consumption would have a substantial influence on price conditions on the wheat market, both because such wheat with rising prices may flow into the market and check price increases, and because though never marketed, it supplies the need of the grower, which would otherwise be satisfied by his purchases in the open market. Number seven, the Amendatory Act of May 26, 1941, which increased the penalty upon farm marketing excess and included in that category wheat, which had previously had not been subject to penalty, held not invalid as retrospective legislation repugnant to the Fifth Amendment when applied to wheat planted and growing before it was enacted, but harvested and threshed thereafter. So what is interstate commerce? To understand the logic or rationalization behind the Wickard versus Philburn opinion, we should explore the original meaning of the term commerce in the Constitution. Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary provides that definition. In a general sense, an interchange or mutual change of goods, wares, productions, or property of any kind between nations or individuals, either by barter or by purchase and sale, uh, trade, traffic, commerce is foreign or inland. The key terminology in this definition is interchange or mutual change of goods, wares, productions, or property of any kind. There has to be a physical interchange of goods, wares, productions, or property. Did the Federalist essays go beyond that to expand the definition? There are four references to the Commerce Clause in the Gideon edition of the Federalist. None expands the definition of interstate commerce. There is an 1824 case, Gibbons versus Ogden, in which the John Marshall Court could be considered as having expanded the original intent of the Constitution's Commerce Clause. Justice Syllabus states, The laws of New York, granting to Robert R. Livingston and Robert Fulton the exclusive right of navigating the waters of that state with steamboats are in collision with the acts of Congress regulating the coasting trade, which being made in pursuance of the Constitution are supreme, and the state laws must yield to that supremacy, even though enacted in pursuance of powers acknowledged to remain in the states. The power of regulating commerce extends to the regulation of navigation. The power to regulate commerce extends to every species of commercial intercourse between the United States and foreign nations and among the several states. It does not stop at the external boundary of a state, but it does not extend to a commerce which is completely internal. The case involves interstate services as opposed to pure goods being exchanged. 
Chief Justice Marshall further stated, commerce is undoubtedly traffic, but it is something more. It is intercourse. It describes the intercourse between nations and parts of nations in all of its branches and is regulated by prescribing rules for carrying on that intercourse. Commerce among the states cannot stop at the boundary line of each state, but may be introduced into the interior. In effect, Marshall was stating that the ferrying of passengers over a river that bounded two states, the Hudson, was a service, and that interstate services qualified as interstate commerce according to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution of the United States. This was a reasonable interpretation of the term commerce. Roscoe Filburn's raising of crops for his own use on his own property, however, does not fall within even the most expansionist definition of interstate commerce. That interpretation was invented by the Supreme Court. So what are the implications of the redefinition of the interstate commerce clause? Based upon the so-called precedent established by the Supreme Court in Wickard versus Filburn, should the children operating lemonade stands in their neighborhood be concerned? Absolutely. After all, a society tends to consume a limited amount of lemonade. To the extent that the children are successful in their neighborhood, theoretically, the demand for lemonade elsewhere is reduced. This is particularly true if the state line is close to their neighborhood. Remember the principle behind Wickard versus Filburn. It was not just that Roscoe Filburn was growing wheat beyond his federal allotment, but that he was theoretically increasing the supply of wheat and therefore reducing its price. The same logic could apply to growing flowers for personal enjoyment on one's property. There appear to be no boundaries as a result of Wickard versus Filburn. Every economic activity, no matter how inconsequential, is within the jurisdiction of the federal government. In order to make any sense out of this curious logic, it's necessary to confront the so-called benign myth being promoted through educational systems that this nation separated from Great Britain over the issue of taxation without representation. Taxation is just one way in which our federal government may intervene in the lives of its citizens. Today, the principle could be generalized to no federal intervention without representation. And the promoters of central government would be insisting that because we get to elect our federal officials every two, four, and six years, that in the interim time, we should be willing to have our lives controlled by the federal government. But taxation without representation was not the major issue when the United States formally separated from Great Britain in 1776. The issues, according to Barbara Tuckman in the March Folly, were decidedly economic. Our ancestors wished to be left alone by the central government officials and allowed to manage their own lives. The implication behind Wickard versus Kilburn is, uh, uh, Filburn is the uh, elitist view that has come down through history that all persons are not created equal, that only a minority among them are bright enough to manage the personal lives of the rest, that it is the manifest destiny of this elite to distort the rule of law to create a mountain of false human law by which the rest of us are to be governed. 
The story of this nation's founding stands in stark contrast to this fatal conceit. It is that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That is the political perspective, but there is also a complementary perspective that comes from the discipline of economics. It focuses on the optimal method of mutually beneficial voluntary exchange among humans faced with the challenge of surviving and thriving in the face of relative scarcity. Two schools of thought have emerged over the past 300 years, one false and one true. The false school assumes that all that is necessary to achieve a smoothly running economy is that uh, the politically elite tax their unwashed subjects in order to fund bureaucracies to establish the rules by which the rest of us are to live. That bureaucracy is also given the power to punish us when we step out of line. Direct taxation never seems to be enough to feed the special interests that form around this bureaucratic form of government, which then resorts to destroying the medium of exchange, money, in an insidious form of hidden taxation called inflation. The alternative, true school of economics, which is called the free market, recognizes the potential of each human being when allowed to pursue happiness, to use Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence. Individual actions are not unconstrained under this system, but must conform to the rule of law based upon the natural law and divine law. In the final analysis, the Supreme Court justices who authored and supported Wickard versus Filburn fell into the trap described by Mark Twain. To a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. All that seemed relevant to them was the human law they had learned and their experience as lawyers and judges. They were guilty of attempting to build a perfect world with a mountain of imperfect human law. Thank you, Phil. I, I, I love your insight, particularly about what Wickard v. Filburn accomplished was really to erase the boundaries the boundaries that had been established by our founders in the Constitution, you see, in Article 1, Section 8, they gave our founders an ability to regulate interstate commerce. That is, when commerce was crossing state lines, but if it did not cross state lines, that is, it remained within the boundaries of the state, that's intrastate commerce, that intrastate commerce was not to be regulated by the federal government. In fact, the Supreme Court earlier in that same century, they got it right. A case, uh, Hammer v. Dagenhart, back in 1918, the Supreme Court made a decision involving the power of Congress to enact child labor laws. And the court in that case, Hammer v. Dagenhart, they held that the regulation of child labor in purely internal manufacturing, that is within a single state, uh, which never entered inter interstate commerce, so you're 
producing something in a factory, it's being sold in the state that it was produced in, that that is beyond the power of Congress. So they got it right in uh, Hammer v. Dagenhart. They also got it right just uh, shortly before this case. That is in 1936, the case Carter v. Carter Coal Company, the Supreme Court decision there interpreting whether or not Congress has the power to regulate production or manufacturing within a state. And the court ruled correctly that Congress cannot regulate intra-state production, that is within the boundaries of the state, under the guise of regulating interstate commerce. And then let me quote that case, Carter v. Carter Cole. Just because a commodity manufactured within a state is intended for interstate commerce, it is not subject to federal regulation under the Commerce Clause. That is, it's only going to be regulated when it comes to a point where it actually is going to cross the state lines. By the way, you know, when we look at Roscoe, Roscoe Filburn was uh, feeding his hogs with this wheat. And those hogs actually never crossed the state line. They didn't, uh, you know, wander from Dayton, Ohio to uh, Indiana or Illinois or something like that. Those hogs never crossed state lines. And so I think the Supreme Court was completely wrong in uh, in, in what they were deciding here in uh, uh, Wicker v. Filburn and their decision enabled Congress to have the power to regulate and prohibit activities that were completely local in nature that never left the boundaries of the state. And this really was an expansion of an enormous expansion of power. In fact, when you look at the history of other Supreme Court decisions, that the entire period of time from Wicker v. Filburn for 70 years, in the 70 year period of time, there were only two other times that uh, the Supreme Court struck down any, any of the legislation that Congress put forward. Basically, they gave Congress a blank check. Go ahead, do whatever you please. It doesn't matter. You can regulate the guy's lemonade stand that uh, that's, uh, that's at his front door because we think it might possibly somehow affect interstate commerce, even if there's no evidence that it would affect interstate commerce at all. So this is one of the dirty dozen cases because I think what this case did is enormously expanded the power of Congress to control every one of our financial transactions. Now, I'm curious about Roscoe. The fine was not that large. It was, well, I guess in that day, it might have been large, $117. But how did they know that he grew this extra wheat? And and had it because it never left his farm. So if he had showed up at market with all this extra bushels, okay, yeah, they might have been able to say, oh, yeah, okay, they got an inspector there in the market when the bushels, but it never left his farm. He used it for his own family. He used it for his hogs and chickens and whatever else. But he never tried to sell that on the market. So how did they know? Did they have spies going out on his property investigating how many acres of wheat he had and what was the yield per acre? It appears it appears that the uh, yeah U.S. Department of Agriculture must have some kind of spy network that goes after farmers. Of course, today they've got all kinds of you know uh, mapping and and all kinds of things that are available from satellite to be able to watch what you're doing on your farm. But back in, in Roscoe Filburn's day, they didn't have that. So I would assume. The federal government must have hired spies to go after Roscoe Filburn, Filburn and, and basically la- label him an outlaw. He's an outlaw farmer. He's growing too much wheat on his own property. But let's think back to the original idea of our founders in terms of what the whole purpose of government is anyway. 
There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. The court is claiming that Roscoe Filburn did not have a God-given right to grow as much wheat as he wanted on his property. And this is – they're affirming this uh, new deal. I would call it a bad deal or a raw deal of FDR, the Agricultural Adjustment uh, uh, Agreement or, or co Constitution. They passed something in violation of the Constitution saying the federal government can take over and control the wheat production in America and can determine how much each farmer is allowed to produce in terms of wheat. Well, why not say how much uh, you're allowed to, like you're saying, Phil, grow flowers or how about, uh, you know, grow tomatoes in your backyard or any aspect. And this is a tyrannical government that wants to take over every part of our life and every part of commerce, even if the commerce is between Roscoe and his pigs. Because, again, Roscoe wasn't selling this on the open market. It didn't have any direct impact on the open market. He was just feeding it to his farm animals and feeding it to his family. And, uh, yeah, well, those farm animals ultimately might have been, you know, taken to market and slaughtered. And maybe ultimately, uh, you know, the bacon from those pigs or whatever would have wound up in Indiana and Illinois. But wait a minute. Interstate commerce happens when it crosses state lines, when that bacon slaughtered in Ohio actually crosses a state line. Into, and then, yes, then Congress has constitutional authority to regulate uh, the commerce, but not beforehand, which is exactly uh, what the, the Supreme Court here is deciding. So this is a really sad case. And I actually, I've, I feel sorry for for poor, poor Roscoe, because he went through the whole process, you know, and he got the right decision the first time in the federal courts. But then the Supreme Court got it completely wrong. And the scope then of Congress's authority to regulate every economic activity under this uh, this decision has been expanded to be virtually unlimited. Now, we have had some uh, recent decisions that have stepped back a little bit from this. Uh, uh, NFIB versus Sibelius in 2012 was one case that said, well, yeah, maybe uh, this is a little bit too far. But by and large, they have allowed uh, Congress to do whatever they please. And the result, if you look at the result in terms of uh, what's happened to we the people, enormous regulations, enormous control of the federal government, government over everything we do that might be considered in anyone's eyes there in Washington, D.C., within the Beltway and the kind of mental uh, disability, I think, that happens once, once people get inside the Beltway because we send people, we elect people, send them down there, and it seems like something changes. You know, maybe it's the water they're drinking there or uh, maybe it's what they're smoking. I'm not sure. But something changes when they get to Washington and they seem to lose their sanity. And indeed, those Supreme Court justices, I think, uh, and, and I think it is from what I read, all eight. It was a unanimous opinion. All eight of them got this wrong. And it was just amazing. You know, you'd think maybe one of them said, this is not really what our founders intended with the concept. This is really stretching. But it appears that all eight of them were in, in unison here. All eight of them have been drinking the same water or smoking the same dope or whatever and, and coming out with a really bad opinion, in my view. And that's this case, Wickard v. Filburn. Well, Mike, what do you say about this case and uh, what impact do you think it has in, in areas like, oh, well, uh, Second Amendment uh, jurisprudence? 
Thanks, Pastor Whitney. And I really can't overemphasize how much this case impacts not only Second Amendment legislation, um, but legislation in all different areas in the federal government. You're correct in stating that the, the opinion reached by the court was unanimous and that unanimous opinion has a line of reasoning that really looks like a Rube Goldberg contraption. And I did us the justice of looking up a Rube Goldberg contraption on the Internet. And what they got is they got an alarm clock with a marble on a table. And when the alarm clock rings, the marble rolls off the table and into a Ferris wheel looking thing. And then that Ferris wheel takes the ball, the marble over and knocks over a cup. And the cup is filled with marbles and the marbles knock over into a bucket. And on the bucket, you have a string that's tied up to a pair of scissors and when the marbles go into the bucket and knock that over, it cuts with the scissors another string and lets down a boot that hits a stapler. And that's a Rube Goldberg contraption. <laughs> that's great. It looks a whole lot like the reasoning in this case because they twisted it and twisted it and twisted it and made it commerce. They knew the result that they wanted and they figured out a way to get there. Uh, you can almost take a look at it and say, I see what they're talking about, but it makes no sense. No common sense involved here. And we've seen this impact just about everything, um, because in 1934, when the National Firearms Act uh, was enacted, this was the first major piece of uh, federal gun control legislation that we saw in this country. They actually implemented as a taxing scheme. And the tax for the transfers of most of these items was $200, which frankly was cost prohibitive for most people because the average family car cost about $550 at the time. And people always ask, why did they make this a taxing scheme? Well, the reason was Congress thought that there was no way they had the authority to regulate firearms otherwise. And as to whether they can relate it through a taxing scheme, I agree with them that they do have no authority to regulate firearms otherwise. Because they've just stretched and stretched and stretched the Commerce Clause. Uh, so much so that when you see the Federal Gun Control Act of 1968, it applies to firearms that are involved in interstate commerce or have effects on interstate commerce. And to this day, that's an element that needs to be proved not only in criminal cases, but in situations where somebody's denied the purchase of a firearm. And I had a conversation with somebody from PSP fairly recently, when I say PSP for our listeners outside of Pennsylvania, I mean Pennsylvania State Police, and we were actually discussing Wickard versus Filburn because this is an issue that often comes up in these hearings where the state police have to prove that the firearm was involved in interstate commerce. And there was a case in Pennsylvania, the Navarro case, uh, where they made it clear that that had to be an element in these denials. Now, if you look at some other jurisdictions in Alaska, for example, um, they had a case that dealt with homemade firearms. And the argument was that even though somebody would be prohibited under 18 U.S.C. 922 G from possessing firearms as a felon, for example, there are many reasons you could be prohibited from possessing prohibited from possessing firearms under 18 U.S.C. 922 G. But just for an example, let's suppose that somebody were a felon uh, and this guy's argument was that this doesn't apply to homemade firearms that are made within the state. They're intrastate, and these firearms um, are not involved in interstate commerce whatsoever. They're not involved in commerce at all. Uh, but this argument has been rejected twice, once in a case called the United States versus Henry, another case called the United States versus Stewart. And in these cases, the courts reasoned that homemade guns could enter the interstate commerce market 
and affect supply and demand, even if they had never traveled in interstate commerce. Could. That's the kind of hypothetical that we're working with here. Well, like Phil said, what else could affect interstate commerce? That is just about everything. Everything could be tied to interstate commerce one way or another. Now, when Pastor Whitney was talking about cases that had been struck down um, and the court ruled that the Commerce Clause had gone so far, this is a little bit of an interesting one because in the Lopez case, uh, basically the argument was that, well, you know, we've got to prohibit this is the Gun Free School Zones Act as originally signed in by George H.W. Bush. Now, keep in mind that the letter next to the candidate's name doesn't always mean that they will be friendly to the Second Amendment. Uh, but with the Gun-Free School Zones Act, their their contention was that, well, when you have violence at schools, that impacts students' abilities to learn, and these students are going to eventually grow up, and if they grow up, they're going to have jobs, and their jobs are going to affect interstate commerce. Sounds uh, like a Rube Goldberg. That it? is certainly <laughs> a Rube Goldberg contraption, and Scalia said, no, this is this is ridiculous. This is too far. Now, interestingly enough, the very same guy voted opposite when it came to marijuana, which leads me to believe as somebody who's observing objectively that it really wasn't about the Commerce Clause, but it was about the matter that was at hand. Like somebody who prefers firearms doesn't necessarily like marijuana because the reasoning in those cases, if you were consistent, should have come out the same way, but it did not. But that's an example through the Lopez case where it got struck down. So what did Congress do? Well, they went back to the drawing board and they said, how could we uh, still uh, enact legislation that would achieve the same goal while making it pass muster under the Commerce Clause? And of course, they did the same thing as the Gun Control Act. They followed that playbook. They went back and they talked about firearms um, being prohibited in gun-free school zones, you know, minus the exceptions. I'm not going to get into the exceptions, but uh, they made it apply to firearms that were involved in interstate commerce. Uh, which is, um, you know, most of them. You do have firearms that are made in Pennsylvania, for example, that stay in Pennsylvania. But when you talk about effects on commerce, that covers just about everything. There's there's nothing you can get away from. And it gives Congress a blank check to regulate whatever they feel like. And it is completely contradictory to the point of our Constitution and having uh limited enumerated powers through Congress and the federal government. The, the other case that was interesting, Mike, was the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sabellas. If you remember, this was the uh, case regarding the Affordable Care Act, what many people call Obamacare, and the individual mandate that uh-huh. basically said you had to purchase health insurance. Uh, and, and this was not this. The court was deciding, well, this is exceeding Congress's authority to regulate interstate commerce. So the claim was, well, if you didn't buy uh, health insurance, the fact that you weren't entering into the market in health insurance would affect the interstate commerce market in health insurance. Again, one of these Rube Goldbergs like, what? How do they come up with this conclusion? I guess it's uh, something they teach in the, you know, the specialty classes at certain law schools or something. How to, <laughs> how to reason this way? I, I don't get it. But uh, you know, the court, it looks like, got the got the position correct to say, wait a minute, or at least in in the whole of that case, that okay, this is uh, this individual health insurance mandate was exceeding congressional authority, uh, and uh, to regulate interstate commerce under the commerce clause. 
that's not within Congress's power to tax. Uh, so, again, but in 70 years, consider that 70 years have, have transpired since Wicker v. Filburn. And there's only two cases where they actually said, yeah, Congress has gone too far here. This is this is uh, we've got to strike this back. And uh, that means all basically Congress has been given a blank check to do whatever they want in regulating uh, commerce within your own house, uh, within your own farm. And, and Wicker, uh, Wicker v. Filburn's case. Out of control. So when we had uh, this healthcare system, this uh, health insurance system that was put forward under Obamacare, you have the, the two models that you've seen in federal gun control legislation and that try with the Commerce Clause and fall back to the NFA with the tax, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, go, go ahead, ahead Bill. You know, my understanding of criminal law, Mike, please correct me if I'm wrong here, is that it is not somebody who intends to commit a crime or who might be thinking of committing a crime, but who actually commits a crime that matters. Uh, you can't go into court claiming that somebody is guilty of criminal action by by claiming that, well, he was thinking about it. And this is this is really the kind of thinking that we're getting in Wickard versus Filburn. You know, well, this could have happened and that could have happened and so forth. I don't think that's what the law is all about. I would I would agree with your your comparison, although sometimes with attempt liability, the government does tend to stretch things a little bit far. <laughs> <laughs> The other curious thing is, I, I, I believe Filburn was arguing, or his attorneys were arguing, that there's a, a case of a violation of the Fifth Amendment here uh, regarding, well, a, a sort of ex post facto law that uh, wheat was not originally, ex at least when he planted his crop, it seems that the wheat was not on the list of uh, items that were going to be regulated. But by the time he had harvested it, it was. So they claim that you violated it because when you planted it, you should have known they're going to change. Anyway, it, it, it's really peculiar. But the Supreme Court just threw that out and said, ah, no, 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 there's there's no problem here at all with that. It doesn't matter when you planted it, when you harvested it. Uh, this regulation applies to you, Mr. Uh, Roscoe. You, you can't escape this claiming that you planted it before uh, the penalties were, were assigned. You know, there's another part of this that is really strange. And I haven't seen anybody really uh, get into this and say, how did, how did this ever come up? Um, you heard the argument uh, that was made by, by the court that Congress had the power through the power of, uh, uh, inter to control, to regulate interstate commerce, to set prices. What? Wait a second. If you accept that, you have destroyed the free market system. Do you really think you can run the United States without the free market system? I mean, how loony are these people? Well, that's a good question because that means they swallowed the kind of uh, uh, centralized planning model of government, which is, you know, communism or socialism, whichever you want to uh, talk about. But uh, the idea that all the prices can be set. And this was FDR. You know, FDR regulated the price of, uh, of, of, of pressing of a man's suit. And there was a, a fellow that, that went to jail. He went to jail because he charged five cents too much 
to press men's suits. And the prices had been set by the regulators under FDR to say it has to be, I think it was like 35 cents or whatever. He charged 40 cents, five pennies, too many. And he went to jail for it. It's just ridiculous. But that's the socialist dream that somehow you get these really smart geeks at the top of the bureaucracy that can establish what is the exact just price for everything. And uh, therefore, yeah, the price of wheat was was part of the presuppositions of the Supreme Court in this case that, of course, the Congress can establish the price of wheat. And, of course, Roscoe, by not buying wheat, uh, he's going to actually affect the price of wheat and so on and so forth. All their their Rube Goldberg method there. Now, there's a strong suggestion in this case in particular of the pressure that FDR was able to exert over the uh, the Supreme Court. I mean, this is a unanimous decision. Okay, let's say that that uh, six of those eight being um, appointees of FDR are nothing more than than political hacks who are rubber stamping whatever he wants. What about the other two? They were they were appointed by uh, Calvin Coolidge. They had lifetime tenure. Yeah. They they weren't going to get thrown off the court for, you know, a correct decision. And yet they, too, were pressured. I mean, that is mind boggling to me. And and the attempt of FDR to actually pack the court, I believe the legislation that he had, you know, some of his hacks in Congress put forward was to add six members to the Supreme Court. And of course, he would get to appoint all six. So obviously, he would have the majority on, or actually a super majority on the Supreme Court. But anyway, that legislation failed. It never passed. But it seems just the threat, which uh, to me, I mean, I, these guys are all dead. So I guess you generally don't want to speak ill of the dead. But these these guys have no no backbone. You know, they, they couldn't stand up to this minor threat. Like you say, it probably wouldn't change what would happen to them in the rest of their career or whatever. But, I mean, why did they allow a threat that was even nullified because Congress never did pass the bill that was going to, you know, appoint six more Supreme Court justices that would all get chosen by FDR so he could get all of his new deal or as some people have called it his raw deal through uh, upon the American people? Well, you know, there's there's uh, an interesting background to the the legislation. Uh, uh, the the uh, Congress was heavily dominated by Democrats at the time, most of whom were FDR Democrats, and yet, you know, they passed everything else: AAA, NRA, you know, whatever. You know, it all it all got passed. This was the one legislation that they said, "Whoa, wait a second. This is tyrannical. Even the Democrats, you know, failed to support this. And that's why um, the law never was never enacted. But now the law was not enacted. What were those two Supreme Court justices thinking who were not appointed by by Roosevelt? I mean, it just looks like uh, got to go along to get along. 
Yeah, uh, I guess you too highly of the Supreme Court. Right. You, you might say that they resemble uh, jellyfish, you know, yes. uh, a creature without any any backbone whatsoever. And well, this relates to what we're going through today, because certainly there's been uh, rumors in the Biden administration of attempting to do exactly the same thing. They say, oh, we got too many conservatives on the Supreme Court. You know, Trump got to a point three and so forth. And we got to change it. And they were basically wanting to revisit this same idea. Uh, but what if you had, you know, 50 members of the Supreme Court or 100 or a couple of hundred, about four or five hundred? Uh, yeah, that would certainly make it uh, basically a political machine. Uh, when you have so many numbers, they're not going to be reasoning based on uh, uh, any judicial process. But, uh, you know, what's going to advance uh, my career or, or reputation? So. I hope that the current Congress doesn't consider the same thing as FDR was uh, putting forward of let's uh, expand the number of Supreme Court justices so the current president gets to uh, fill it up and tip the balance in his direction, because that simply makes the Supreme Court a political animal and and nothing more. And we already know that uh, uh, members of that Supreme Court uh, that were appointed by Trump have been extremely disappointing in some of the opinions that, that they've come forward with. Yeah, everybody work. See, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, it wouldn't work anyhow, because if you start to play that game, then the next person who comes in power just adds more, right? And it <laughs> until you got a thousand Supreme Court justices. So you can start now and it could never end, or you could just leave it alone. You know, as you look at Wicked versus Philburn, uh, another thing that concerns me here is this whole idea of of precedent. Uh, and Mike, maybe you know more about how precedents are set by these opinions. You know, those cases that that uh, establish precedents and those cases that do not. Um, I understand the Dred Scott, which is universally considered to be the worst decision that uh, the, the worst opinion that came out of the uh, Supreme Court. I don't think that was ever officially reversed. Uh, I have I have not heard that Wickard versus Filburn has been reversed as bad as it is. Uh, I think it's still on the books and maybe even is considered to be precedent, although you'd have to be a, an idiot to, to try to uh, implement that, that precedent. But uh, at least with Roe v. Wade, uh, finally, there was a decision that reversed that. So where do we go with, with cases like Wickard versus Filburn? Well, a lot of the times that when you have a case uh, and there might be this precedent hanging over, uh, before you look to overrule, you might look to distinguish and say, well, this case is different than that case, and here's the reason why. And here's the reasoning why my case uh, doesn't fall within the Commerce Clause, for example. Uh, so you could always do that uh, regardless of whether something constitutes precedent. It comes down to does the precedent apply? Now, if the precedent does clearly apply and you're in the situation where the facts are analogous, let's say, then you can argue for a change in the law, the fundamental change in the law. When you're looking at it, practically speaking, you want to look at uh, is the court going to deny uh, what I'm asking for based upon this precedent, right? Has this already been decided? Am I going to get a bad result? Am I arguing uh, for something that's already well settled? Uh, regardless of whether you know awful cases that are unanimously considered awful cases like Dred Scott have been formally overruled, I would never have any hesitation 
to go into court and argue something that is completely 100% contrary to that precedent, for example. So is it is it possible that, uh, you know, I, I suppose Congress obviously is not likely to pass any piece of legislation that's going to restrict their actions in terms of the Commerce Clause unless we have a radical overturning, which would be wonderful. You know, if we had a radical overturning and you had true constitutionist uh, elected to uh, every state uh, represented in Congress and uh, we could roll back because Congress would undo a lot of the things that have been done that really are, are a violation of the Commerce Clause. But short of that, uh, what what other options do we have? You know, I I will say this. Unfortunately, this is another example of where the, the court got it wrong, but it shows why the court is important. Because the reason this ended up in the court in the first place is because you've got the government trying to impose these restrictions, these unconstitutional restrictions, right? We all agree that it's unconstitutional. The government didn't. The government didn't. If we let it to the devices of the legislature, then that would be the end of the road if we didn't have a, a court to at least appeal to. So it didn't help us in this case. Uh, but it shows why it's at least it's better than nothing. <laughs> it's better than nothing. Yeah. The other, yeah, I can accept that. Uh, I can accept that. <laughs> the other curious thing here is that uh, the way this agricultural system was set up, he was fined without having any trial. And he, he also, you know, claimed that in this case that, wait a minute, my due process Fifth Amendment rights were violated here. They just imposed this fine upon me and said, I got to pay this fine. But wait a minute, I'm not guilty. Uh, I, I haven't been uh, there's no jury trial that I've actually been able to uh, argue my case before. And so he was arguing that his Fifth Amendment rights for due process were being violated because this agricultural, you know, the National Agricultural Adjustment Act. And so just just flat out find him, said you're guilty and, and uh, you know, you don't get your day in court. And well, he did get his day in court. <laughs> Sad to say it was not a happy day for him in court. Well, I understand that uh, that became an issue in in a case that we will be covering in the future, uh, Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council. Now, that comes after uh, Wickard versus Filburn. uh, But the basic idea is that uh, um, the the administrative agency is considered to be right um, until, you know, uh, proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be wrong which is just the opposite of, of most uh, parts of our, our judicial system in which uh, the defendant is considered to be innocent until proven guilty. Hmm. So you're guilty until proven innocent and the government's always right. <laughs> you got you to gotta prove the government to be wrong. <laughs> oh, my. It's, it's, Isn't that it's, wonderful? <laughs> it's, it's not just that. It goes beyond that. Um, these administrative agencies are prosecutor- Judge and jury, all three combined. And sadly, also, they make the law. That is, right. they get to write administrative procedures and applications that are effectively law because you could be punished under these. Uh, but Congress never, ever considers or passes the uh, the administrative law that is uh, developed by these agencies. Uh, I think of the most egregious one being the IRS. You know, the IRS code so large that no person could ever know the entire code and not one line of that code, if I understand correctly, not one line of the IRS code has ever sat before Congress to be voted upon. They simply said, oh, we'll give the IRS power to make all the rules and regulations regarding everything. And like you mentioned, Phil, with this case, uh, 
with the IRS, you're guilty until proven innocent. That is, if the IRS says, we believe that, you know, you've, uh, you know, not filled out your form right or whatever, they can begin garnishing your wages. They can go after your bank account and all kinds of other egregious things, even before you've had a trial, you know, because you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent, which is why these administrative uh, uh, agencies are such a burden to the American people. And they are such a violation of the Constitution because there is no lawmaking power given by our Constitution to any administrative agencies. They're part of the executive branch. The executive branch doesn't make law. The very first words of the Constitution after the preamble are all, and the word all means all, all legislative power hearing granted is in the Congress, not in any administrative agency. And therefore, really, administrative law ought to be all thrown out, in my opinion. If we're to return to the constitutional standard, that's not lawful. The federal government can't do that, and they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. You know, effectively, the administrative uh, part of our government has become a fourth branch. And you could say that uh, uh the Federal Reserve System is actually a fifth branch of government. And yet when you go back to the structure, as you've pointed out, Pastor uh, uh, Whitney, the, the federal government uh, is not allowed to create branches of government. Uh, it, the number of branches of government is, is hardwired into the Constitution. Uh, the only way that you could uh, create a situation in which there is a fourth branch of government is for an amendment to that effect. Correct. Yeah. And there has been no amendment. They've just done it, which, by the way, George Washington has said that's usurpation. One of those terms that, you know, doesn't uh, hit into our vocabulary very often, but ought to because usurpation is grabbing power that does not belong to you. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you see your neighbor's yard as a mess. And so you go over there and decide you're going to do the weeding and cutting grass and maybe even paint the house or whatever. Well, your neighbor's going to be very upset with you. Rightly so. You have usurped his authority and his power over his own yard, over his own house. And that's why the Constitution, as our founders clearly established it, you know, Thomas Jefferson talks about don't trust men anymore with any power. Chain them down with the chains of the Constitution. That was their their vision. They knew that you can't trust people with power. you got to limit what they can do. And the design of our Constitution was not to allow any lawmaking power to come from the executive branch, not executive uh, uh, edicts from on high of the White House, you know, uh, executive orders. They are not law. Uh, nothing coming out of the administrative agencies. None of that can be law. Law has to be passed by Congress. And if Congress doesn't pass it, it's not law. But uh, lots of uh, lots of luck taking into tax court and arguing that they'll just say, ah, your theory is wrong. And we we're right. We've got the power. We've got the guns. We've got the prison. So just shut up and pay your bill as whatever we tell you that bill is. And that's that's the definition of tyranny. And that's what our founders were fighting against in uh, overturning King George the Third's rule here in in the 13 colonies. Yeah, I guess I don't have too much of a problem with with a legitimate regulation being written by within the administrative area. But the point is that all of this has to be absolutely consistent with the law. Um, you can't have general statements uh, in, in legislation that said, well, uh, the IRS is free to create whatever uh, uh, supporting legislation it feels it needs to support uh, blah, blah, blah. 
No, 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 no. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, the the regulations, if they if they are allowed, you should be able to point a connection to the specific legislation uh, that Congress has has made, and that that legislation had better be constitutional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and whatever they whatever power they're granting to the administrative agency should not allow them to do any punishment unless those things are all part of a legislative uh, you know package put together by Congress. In other words, IRS and uh, EPA and all these other bureaucracies they should never have any punishing powers unless those are actually clear legislative statements that Congress has passed uh, rather than the you know EPA just deciding hey you got a puddle in your backyard well we're going to call that water and it's part of the law of the waters and therefore we're in control of your backyard because you've got a puddle in your backyard and by the way um, that, that sounds like a ridiculous idea well it's happened yes there's people who've been told you can't build a house on this piece of property because there's a puddle in the backyard and we're in control of that puddle because it's part of the waters and the law regarding waters and the EPA is in control of that puddle therefore you know <laughs> I guess people should not have any puddles in their backyard because otherwise the EPA will claim they have jurisdiction and control over that property. No, I, I agree with you that they, um, the administrative part of government should never have the ability to punish. That is the role of the courts. Now, if the courts are overwhelmed, we have to determine, number one, whether we wish to increase the, the size of the judiciary uh, and perhaps even its composition, its organization. Or perhaps we should be looking back at some of this legislation and saying, do we really want to go down this road? Or would it be better if we uh, just eliminated this legislation uh, altogether because of the difficulty in um, establishing it within the system of justice? And that would have been a good thing for this court to have done with Wickard v. Filburn, that they would look at the AAA, that's the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and say, wait a minute. Did our founders did our founders even have this idea that uh, you know George Washington growing the wheat on on a, you know, Mount Vernon plantation could be under the control of Congress that Congress could tell him how much wheat he could our founders would have vomited at such an idea no way no way are we going to tell people how much wheat they can grow on their own property this whole piece of legislation is unconstitutional so what should have happened is. You know, Supreme Court justices, knowing what the Constitution, knowing what the original intent, comparing with the AAA Act, say, no, 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 this thing is unconstitutional. Strike it down. Roscoe is the one that wins this case. And sorry, Wickard, uh, you're in the wrong camp. You should, uh, you know, resign your position because your job is actually unconstitutional. Imagine what would happen if we were able to go back to the constitutional standard. Most of the bureaucrats working in Washington, D.C., or all their branch offices all over the country, most of those bureaucrats would be out of business. <laughs> They'd have to go find a real job rather than, than uh, bloodsuckers who take the lifeblood of the people, which is all they do. They, government produces nothing. It's just a bunch of bloodsuckers sucking off the life of the people. But we want to reduce those bloodsuckers to a minimum. And if we were to follow the Constitution, that's what we would see. And all of these would be gone. Gone, just like our founder said, um, King George has sent out his uh, officers to eat out our substance. And that's what we see going on in our day as well. Just don't leave the legislature to its own devices. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, good point. Well, when we look at these cases, uh, and it is valuable to look at these cases because, Mike, you've pointed out that they continue to affect very practical on-the-ground things today. Your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms and uh, uh, your right to open your own business and, and you know determine what you are going to do uh, on your own farm. All of these things have very practical implications for us today, which is why we need to study these and why we're doing this, the Dirty Dozen here on We the People, the Constitution Matters. We invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. And also check out our website, 1180WFYL.com. And if you uh, click the button there for podcasts, see right at the very bottom there is we the people the constitution matters and we are bringing you the american view there is a creator god our rights come from him the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those god-given rights